Well, also, like, you hear these stories, and I think this is just an, maybe just an indication of how men and women were in the equity of marriage at that time or something. But she was like, yeah, I wasn't really that good a cook. So then sometimes I just have cooked a whole meal for my husband. He would just come home and throw it out the window without touching it. <laughs> And I was like, and I, and then there's one instance where she's like, no, my sister cooked that. She's actually good at it. And it was already outside. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, we've been eating dandelions all week. What the hell? You're throwing this right out. <laughs> yeah, this is better than that snow milk. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the podcast where lifelong friends and lifelong musicians get together once a week and review an album from Robert Dimery's list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we pick an album at random from this list. We all listen to it. We analyze it. We get together here. We throw some praise. We heap some scorn and ultimately decide on whether or not you need to go and listen to that album before you die. Then, at the end of the podcast, we'll pick another album at random. We will then rinse, lather, and repeat until we work our way through the entire list of 1001 albums, or we get bored, or we all die of natural causes. Before we get started, want to let everybody know that we do have an email address as you're listening. If we're getting anything wrong or if we're getting everything right, you can drop us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We'll also be including a playlist of all the songs that we reference on today's episode. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this album yet, don't worry. We're going to include plenty of clips as we work our way through it. So this week, we are listening to Loretta Lynn's. Don't come home a drinking with a lovin' on your mind. That's in parentheses there at the end. I guess the album is actually called Don't Come Home a Drinkin'. This album was released on February 6th of 1967 and coming in at just over 28 minutes, it's a quick listen. So if, if you have a chance, <laughs> throw it on in the background right now. Listen to us talk for 90 minutes about it. <laughs> That's... That's right. And it's actually her 10th album out of 50 published. And so my thought was, why would Robert Dimery pick this album? I think it's because this was the first one where she had a number one hit. And so let's actually get things rolling first. What we're going to do is we're going to give you the title track here, and then we're going to jump into some introductions and some tweet length reviews. So let's hear the title track, Don't Come Home a Drinking with Lovin' On Your Mind. That was the first number one hit for Loretta Lynn. So let's throw it around the room. Alan. Well, as uh, as someone who has very often come home a drinking, I can certainly uh, sympathize with, with her position. Um, although you alluded to it earlier, I'm kind of glad this was only 28 minutes, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Rob, what are you feeling? Yeah, I think 
it, it was a first listen for me. It's out of, I think, all our genres, but certainly out of my genre. But I found it to be quite the earworm throughout the week. It does suffer from being a little samey throughout the songs. I agree with that. We'll talk about that. But this title track and some others, they're good songs. I think they're cleverly written, and they stuck with me. Tom. Yeah, um, my tweet-length review here is that uh, in a collection that contains the likes of the Notorious B.I.G., Jizza, and N.W.A., who would have thought that a five-foot-two mother of six would be the biggest gangster on the entire list? Um, <laughs> nice. I yes. love Loretta Lynn. I'm I'm not a particular fan of her music. <laughs> I love her message, though. I really can't get over how progressive this is. She is a badass. There, there's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah, and this is Adam, and my review is, if all your songs are going to sound exactly the same, at least keep them short, which she does. Eight of the 12 songs on this album are under two and a half minutes. Now, that's a little bit, little bit of scorn there I'm throwing at her, but Tom, exactly to your point, I am in love with Loretta Lynn. She is a badass, which we'll get into shortly here. So she had a quote that stuck out to me that I, I think is one of one of her bigger quotes is to make it in this business, you either have to be first, great or different. And I was the first to ever go into Nashville singing it like the women lived it. And I think that is really the key to her success. Now, we, we joke about country music and I've heard people joke about country music being that your dog died, your wife ran out on you, your pickup truck broke and all that stuff. Tractors, too. Right, yes, plenty and of tractors and <laughs> America and beer. Loretta Lynn's life was built for country music. <laughs> it's almost like it was preordained. So for those of you who don't know, Loretta Lynn was born in Butcher Hollow, Kentucky, which is literally in uh, the middle of nowhere. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to correct there. It's Butch, Butcher Holler. But butcher holler there. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Only city folks say hollow. <laughs> if you Googled butcher hollow, it wouldn't come up. You had to make it. I'm going to get you shot around there, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry so to she, all of our Kentucky listeners. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any coal miners listening to this, uh, please send us your information. We'll make up a T-shirt just for you. I don't think podcasting has made you. it to Kentucky yet. <laughs> 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 a couple years behind of that technology. <laughs> Although I am enjoying a nice um, Kentucky bourbon as we speak. I should. Uh, S- same here. Well nice done. Yellowstone. So she was the second of eight children born to a coal miner. She lived in a house with no running water, no electricity, and they only had two beds for all 10 of them. It was Willy Wonka without the candy, basically. Right. <laughs> it was the saddest place in the world. My real question is, like, how do you even get past kid number one or two when you have a house that small? Like, when are you banging? When are you making right. those other, like, seven well, kids? apparently every time you come home and drinking. Yeah. It's, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cued up for that so, one. <laughs> so her father dies of black lung, no big surprise, at 52. Now, she met her husband, and this this is where it gets kind of creepy, and it, it is what happened. She wrote it in her book. It is the story. She met her husband when she was 13 years old. After one month of courting, they got married. She was pregnant at 14. How old and was she had he four, at the time? 
He was 21. Yeah, yeah 21. He, he was like a war veteran. He had been around a bit. Oh. He was a, yeah, Doolittle was, was the guy's name. Uh, that's what he was called. I, I forget what his actual name was, but, and he was a piece of shit. Man, this dude. <laughs> All of the, <laughs> the the banging an eighth grader wasn't uh, enough to tell you that he <laughs> was a piece of shit. <laughs> it sounded like he provided uh, a lot in the way of source material. <laughs> I well, hold on. I do have to tell you, not that I'm sticking up for Doolittle here, because that's a ridiculous byline, of course. <laughs> but because I'm such a great dedicated researcher, podcast listeners, I went ahead and read Coal Miner's Daughter this past week which Loretta Lynn wrote her, it's her memoir, and it was famously turned into a movie with Sissy Spacek, and she, I believe, won an Oscar for it. Anyway, she, she wrote it in her 40s or something, and maybe she felt like she really had to defend her husband. She, stick, she stuck with her husband, and she is a huge, huge defender of him and thinks that he's a huge part of her career, has always encouraged her, has always helped her on the business side of things. So I was a little surprised by that. She didn't have a sob story at all, and maybe that's part of her gangsterhood. But that that's right, me. right. I yeah. He he actually bought her her first guitar, which was eleven dollars at a Sears and Rob out of a Sears and Robux catalog. To me, now I didn't read the book, Rob. I'm always amazed that you can read a book in a week. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't good with words. Gonna stop that. Read a book, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's a, sim- a there's week? a simple answer, guys. <laughs> So he obviously he he pushed her to get into singing. One of the very first times she ever sang in public was at his recommendation. He kind of you know encouraged her to get on stage. Things took off from there. She wound up in Washington State. Her husband Doolittle had picked up and moved the family out there, where he continued to be a piece of shit. Where he I think left them for two months, where she had to feed her children dandelions, and he wasn't there to help. So her, uh, from the interview I, I watched on, I think it was 60 Minutes, she describes this scenario. But anyway, she wound up in Washington, where she somehow wound up on Buck Owens. He had a variety show. She got up and sang a song that she had written. Some lumber CEO heard it, wound up basically creating a record company for her to cut a two-song album. Then she drove through the country, promoting it at radio stations. And that's kind of how she blew up very, very grassroots way that she came up. I'm guessing uh, she had to bring the kids with her when she was driving oh, around the country. I don't think Doolittle oh, was taking care of her oh, home. Yeah. <laughs> Funny story. So when she had released her second album, I believe it was, she had just had twins. So nine days after she had twins, she got back on the road and was driving around touring, left the kids with her parents and to this day, still claims that that's one of her biggest regrets because it was so hard. More to the gangster point, I they I don't know how you... They weren't her first kids, though, let's be clear, right? She had no, four no, kids they were, by the age yeah, of 18, and then I think those right. twins were f- maybe five and six. I'm not 100% sure. This is ruining all of my excuses for why I can't get shit done in life <laughs> with just two kids. So, so this is not helping things. I, I thought I thought it might be worth... I noticed we mentioned actually Buck Owens on another podcast briefly, and I thought just one thing we failed to mention last time that I realized after the fact to put listeners in correct orientation, because we're not super in-depth in the history of country music, but listeners might know Buck Owens because he's the writer of the song that Ringo sang called Act Naturally on the Mm -hmm. Beatles album, Help. Yeah. So I thought that was like just a little touchstone into our music from Buck Owens. 
And he was Buck Owens and Kitty Wells and some of the other people are like the generation prior to Loretta Lynn. They came up in the 50s. She really hit in the early 60s with uh, she had a, a slew of albums in the early 60s. And as I mentioned, this is actually the 10th album out of, by the way, 50. She's still releasing 50- music. She is. She, she cut did that it. record with Jack White a couple years ago, and they won the Grammy. Yeah, that's right. I found that's it right. hilarious when I was doing like a base of research that she lost. For some reason, this image sounded hilarious in my mind that she lost a Grammy a few years ago to Sturgill Simpson, and just the idea of like you know juxtaposing this old. You know, she's got to be like ninety, and she's going. She's eighty nine right like, now. Yeah, <laughs> I just found it to be uh, a little bit. Uh, jarring I, the thing that i found again we're talking during a period of time where she has six children and she does not have a husband who was like i will stay home i'm a stay-at-home dad as i just you know all i do is take him to the park and now she put out between 1965 and 1970 she put out 15 studio albums in the course yep. of five years that is insanity yeah. yeah even half an hour long album still 15 of them <laughs> But you gotta it was a different it was a different process like she was sure. showing up and these were two one two three take kind of affairs no overdubs no agonizing over a take i have to imagine she sounds great don't get me wrong and it's still an accomplishment but it was definitely different times and re dad's taking kids to the park i have some great poor anecdotes from her upbringing like what based on what she was raised do you think she was worried about kids going to the park christ no yeah, yeah of course not <laughs> Not starving to death or getting mauled by a bear. She said she was 13 before almost married. Keep in mind before she ever rode in a car. Right. That's right. Their favorite dinner as kids, which they called coal miners steak was actually bologna. And then, and this is the saddest one. She was like, yeah, we didn't have ice cream as kids, but every once in a while we'd eat some snow and put milk on it. (laughs) That's like, Dickensian level like depression. Like, I hope daddy don't sell me. <laughs> she was <laughs> real poor. That sounds like the premise to like a sequel for the road. <laughs> I, I do have a question though, actually, back to her like volume of producing or recording albums. If I'm not mistaken, a lot of these though, and I'm not trying to diminish it though, I mean, but these are a lot of I don't want to say covers, but songs that were not written by her right so i mean it's right when we get into some of the songs on the focus list that we'll go through there are i think one of them had actually been recorded or covered 12 times in just the span of the 1960s by various artists so we will hit that one and alan again to your point she did write a good amount of songs but a lot of these are that You've got your stable of writers and your stables of musicians, and it really was just cranking through. I need a country tune. All right. I wrote one about a fence falling over. All right, grab the guys. Let's get into the studio. And to Rob's point, it was kind of a one, two, three, let's go uh, with Conway Twitty. I mean, you're, you're such volume of material that it definitely was in that realm of, of professional we, songwriters. We talked about it with um, with Steve Earle. There was the Nashville Machine, right? right? It yes, was like you're yes. in the machine, and like it was aptly named. They had an entire like just apparatus that they'd be slotting you into, and be like, all right, well, you fit what we need. You fit what we need. Which I find it funny that they were like Loretta Lynn 
fits what we need because she doesn't seem like she would have fit. Maybe we can well, talk a little bit first, more in depth about some of the songs. When she first tried to get uh, a, a recording contract with Decca Records, she came to them and said, we've already got you. We've got three blonde versions of you. Why do we need you? And she had a handful of songs that she said, I will give you these songs if you bring me on. They agreed she became a recording artist under Decca. And that's, again, where her personality and the content of her material, which is very pro-woman, very feminist, kind of shot her off from the Kitty Wells and some of the the more, I don't know, I don't want to say passive, but but some of those kind of stock blonde country singers that you hear from the mid-50s to yeah. uh, late-50s. Well, we should say that a couple of the songs that aren't on this record that she's kind of known for, she's known for the Coal Miner's Daughter song, which is a story about her life. But in terms of those progressive, almost edgy songs for their time, she wrote a song about the birth control pill that was a hit and was considered really edgy for certainly for country music at that time and coming from a woman. And she wrote a song, I think it's called X-Rated, that's about the double standard between men and women and promiscuity. It's about about how when you're divorced as a woman, people look at Ah, you as like damaged. When you're divorced as a man, they're like, oh, back on the market. Let's snag up this prize. And she's like, what what the fuck, man? Like, he's the one who was like hitting me and, you know, cheating on me. And then all of a sudden I'm the one who's at fault when we get divorced. What the hell? Makes a good point. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to hit some of the some more of the stats real quick, just because she's just a, a living legend and and such a prolific career. Twenty one number one hit singles, fifty studio albums, thirty six compilation albums, two live albums, five video albums, two box sets, and twenty four additional album appearances throughout her career. How does that stack up against Iron Maiden? That's what I'm curious. Oh man, <laughs> that's a good point. I did see a picture of her wearing one of those Eddie the Head T-shirts, so maybe they right. uh, totally. Maybe there's a partnership <laughs> in the works. All right, so I'm going to give you guys just talking about how her husband kind of gave her a lot of material for her career. We're going to play three truths and one lie. We'll see if you guys can pick it out. Okay. Loretta Lynn's husband, Doolittle, was a vicious alcoholic, womanizer, serial cheater, and wife beater. All right, that's option one. Loretta Lynn's husband once left her while she was giving birth. That's option two. Number three, Loretta Lynn's husband once got roaring drunk and pointed a loaded gun at her in a bathroom, threatening to kill her if she ever cheated on him. And then number four, Loretta Lynn's husband, Doolittle, was actually the inspiration for the 1998 Eddie Murphy comedy, Dr. Doolittle. So which one can you guys guess? I mean, listen, also, Doolittle, clearly kind of a little bitch, because if he threatened to shoot her if she cheated on him, her subject matter seems to appear that he did not follow through on that threat, even though it seems <laughs> right. like she followed through on it pretty prolifically. <laughs> she called his bluff. Yeah, definitely. She was pulling the cash in at the time. Well, also, like you hear these stories, and I think this is just an maybe just an indication of how where where men and women were in the equity of marriage at that time, or something. But she was like, "Yeah, I wasn't really that good a cook." So then sometimes I just have cooked a whole meal for my husband. He would just come home and throw it out the window without touching it. (laughs) And I was like, and I and then there's one instance where she's like, "No, my sister cooked that. She's actually good at it. And it was already outside." (laughs) (laughs) Also, like. We've been eating dandelions all week. What the hell? You throwing this right. out? 
<laughs> yeah, this is better than that snow milk. <laughs> uh, it also took me down a rabbit hole of some of some of the the Simpsons stuff around country music. So I I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the Simpsons episode Colonel Homer where he takes on as the manager for Lurleen Lumpkin. It's a reference, LL, Loretta Lynn. So the the Simpsons were running with that. But then that also took me to, to that one spot where Krusty is singing at the prison. <laughs> Do you remember that? To the criminals? And he's like something. I slugged some guy in Tahoe. They, oh, they gave, gave me, me one, one to three. three. My high-priced lawyer sprung me on a technicality. I'm just visiting Springfield Prison. I get to sleep at home tonight. Hey, hey, I can't. So then I went and watched the insanity that is that Johnny Cash live from San Quentin. If you have a chance, that's another just bizarre slice of life for country music. Is that a, I've, I've listened to the record, but I didn't know there was a do, attended documentary. There's, there's a video, and a boy named Sue, if you've ever listened to it and thought, he's not like hitting. Like the band is kind of like flying by the seat of their pants because yeah. he's actually reading it oh, off nice. of a music stand, and he's just kind of fumbling through it, and the band's like can't, watching him. Can't pass by with announce without announcing that I think that is one of the best songs ever written on this yeah. earth <laughs> by by none <laughs> yes. other than Shel Silverstein. That's that is where a the sidewalk ends himself. Yeah, yeah. that is a classic. I will say I got my kids where the sidewalk ends recently. That is bizarre. It is really some crazy, like, I, re- remembering it from my childhood, I did not remember how just odd it was. Weird. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Shaw Silverstein did a lot of drugs. You, oh, you, totally. You got to wait until they're just a little older, and then you get them that Shell Silverstein book, Uncle Shelby's ABZs. I was, I was so into the humor of that book when I was, like, between <laughs> 9 and 12. It's awesome. But, yeah, he was, a, he was a prolific songwriter, I think. He even got mentioned in Loretta Lynn's memoir as I don't know which of his songs she ended up doing, but he was out there in the country music scene. He was he was definitely a world class weirdo, but he was supplying songs to the Nashville machine as well. All right. So, gentlemen, if you're all ready, let's jump in to some of these tunes a bit deeper. We played just a clip of Don't Come Home, a drinking earlier in the show. Let's roll another small section of that to get some flavor. All right, so I, I'm curious if you have any recording session info on this particular album, and I want to talk a little bit about the way that like things were recorded and the way that things were mixed. Everything is hard panned except for the vocals, and they have the, the drums and bass hard panned right, and mm-hmm. everything else is hard panned left on most songs, and it really left me feeling like the song itself was like hollow because... It felt like everything that was tonal existed on one side and everything that was rhythmic existed on the other side, and they didn't blend very well because of that. Now, 
I don't know enough about country to know if that's a very specific choice, but it seemed odd to me. It was very consistent. I totally dig that. The backup group that sang on this album, there's a group of four guys. It was a quartet called the Jordanaires, which is different than the Air Jordans, which was the backup quartet for that Michael Jordan album in the 90s. <laughs> Space Jam um, soundtrack. <laughs> that was terrible. I'll be I'll be cutting that one. The, the Jordanaires, they were a, a gospel vocal quartet. They also worked with Elvis. You can kind of feel that sound in there. They worked with Patsy Cline, yes, too. It, exactly. It was all left. So very, very interesting point there, Tom. I, it didn't really bump me too much. I, I agree with your sentiment overall, but it didn't really bump me. I, I always think of that as just a vestige of the time period. Like they used panning. It felt like they didn't really understand how to mix. And then they hit some bump in the 1960s, perhaps with the help of the Beatles and George Martin, where they were like, oh, this is how to do it. And then yeah. everything changed. They thought you had to go all one or the other, right? Well, it was, you know, Rob (laughs) and I have worked with an old soundboard from the 60s and done everything straight to tape, no digital. And I remember during the mixing process, like we were standing there with our hands on sliders and it'd be like, okay, and now up and now pull back down. So you had to sort of like be dynamically doing it as it was existing on the tape. Oh, wow. um, As opposed to having it like dumped digitally. And so that could have been the thing. They were just like, listen, we're not going to sit here. We're trying to make like, you know, 12 more albums this year with the same artist. So (laughs) we're not going to sit here and do a lot of like dynamic mixing. We're just going to set it and forget it and say, this is just what it sounds like. I also need to take a little issue with, uh, yeah, liquor and love just don't mix. I mean, come on. What are you talking about here? Well, define love. I was going to say, at least one of my children is a product of that. So. Right. That reminds me of the speaking of Simpsons when he's like, you know, reminiscing with Marge. He's like, I was drunk on love and beer. <laughs> one of the other things I want to talk about is the, the timber of Loretta Lynn's voice. What did you guys think about that? So it's funny that I'm not surprised that The Simpsons came up, of course, because I know the people on this call. But I kept thinking of Lurlene, the singer, who I believe is played by the actress Beverly D'Angelo on The Simpsons. It's a song I wrote while I was mopping up your dried blood and teeth. You work all day for some old man, sweat and break your back. Yeah. Then you go home to your castle. But your queen won't cut you slack. That's true. That's why you lose I, I guess she may have been directly aping Loretta, Loretta Lynn's style. I thought she had a really nice quaver in her voice that sounded very approachable and kind of like a real person, which I think was the aesthetic she was going for. So to me, it really worked with the material uh, very well. But I kept thinking of those songs in The Simpsons, which were also expertly crafted, we should point out. Yeah, I thought her voice sounded great. Like I thought that she sounded, it sounded really nice, but she wasn't trying too hard. And I think sometimes you hear that someone's trying to go really big or hit something really high or trying to do something, you know, grandiose. And I, she just sounds really comfortable and knows her range really well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I didn't detect anything that was like, jarring vocally i think that was you know obviously the one of the highlights for me of of the record in general well she was born in 32 so that would have made her 35 
34, 35 when she recorded this album, which is, you're not a spring chicken in the, in the music biz. If you, and this is, uh, she first started recording in 62, 63. So she was in her thirties when she got yeah. into it. And she, so, had, she had been married 20 years, 20 plus right. years. So that ages you too. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Very I, mature. So I found that her voice had a lot of realness to it. I think there's like a lot of realness on this album, um, generally speaking. You know, I feel like a lot of country songs are about like longing. You know, women, specifically female country singers, they sing about like longing for somebody. They're not often like, you're hitting me and cheating on me, so I'm going to cheat on you too. Like, you you don't write that unless you're like really doing that. That's not the kind of thing you're just going to mm-hmm. put out in the world unless it's unless it's real. But I did find that on some of the songs, it sounded like she was shouting her vocals at me. And that might have something to do with the way that they mix the voice like way out in front. Um, but it did have a little bit of like, and I'm not even saying it didn't work because I, I think it lent itself to like a little bit of seeming like genuine anger, but it did come across as not a Patsy Cline who has a beautiful voice. Like I did, I would never describe her voice as beautiful. Um, I would describe it as real, but not beautiful. Certainly. I, Adam, I thought you would have had more problem with that. (laughs) Well, it's the, the goat vibrato. Which which bothers me the the moment there's any note held out it's that whoa 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 it's just very uh yeah it's it's not super pleasant but I enjoyed her voice on this album despite that I think she's an absolutely lovely singer I, I can't exactly disagree with what you guys are saying and I agree it's a very real we keep saying authentic kind of voice and and purposefully so but I I have to believe some of this is a vestige of just how they recorded records then she must have just been exercising her own mic control is my guess like how much mixing do you think there really was it made me think a little bit of the solomon burke recording and he's definitely a much more talented singer i get it and we commented on that but i just felt like it was of its time in terms of how it was produced but but i i thought her voice was really notably a positive on the album for me that's a fair point. I would say that I am more familiar with Patsy Cline. I I've, I have a couple of her records that I, I listen to. It's good dinner music, and I will say that you know they they were, you know they're recording at the same time basically. And I do feel like there was a little bit more polish on the Patsy Cline songs, but I think more polish on these songs wouldn't have actually worked all that well. <laughs> I agree. Patsy mm-hmm. Cline's a sweeter sounding singer. I agree with that. And here's something interesting. Maybe I'm telling tales out of school, but Loretta Lynn had a, Patsy Cline was only a few years older than her, but kind of, she saw her a little bit as a big sister in the industry and felt like Patsy Cline really helped her out. She didn't name names of who she thought the other female artists were that talked a lot of shit and tried to block her from that Nashville machine. So we can all speculate now on who that might be. Another major country star from around that time who's also a female. But Right. I know I know that Patsy Cline was important in her life, so I was also shocked to learn that Patsy Cline died in a plane crash. Like, yeah. Every in artist 63? from the sixties died in a plane crash? The hell, man. Gotta get Apparently to the next Loretta, gig. Yeah. <laughs> Loretta was pretty broken up over that. And actually later on in her career she wound up releasing an album, a tribute album that was nothing but Patsy Cline songs. Even though she said at concerts she would get lots of requests for her to sing. Patsy Cline songs, but she always refused until she released that tribute album. 
Well, and it's funny because you call them Patsy Cline songs, but I don't think Patsy Cline wrote a single song in her entire career. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. She's most known for the Willie Nelson song. Crazy, right? Yeah. Okay, my comment on Don't Come Home With Drinking was that I thought, unlike, I think one of the challenges with this album, and we're probably going to say a lot of the same things for a lot of these songs, which is fine. The piano playing on this felt really light and airy and not stock. I think for a lot of these songs, the arrangement could have just been country band version one, you know, in in Garage Band or something. Yeah, yeah, dude. I have a note about that on the overall album, yeah. But in this one, I thought at least the piano playing differentiated itself a bit. This is on top of what I thought of as clever lyrics and a catchy melody. And so that that kind of set it apart to me. So this this wasn't the first number one in question, right? Is that that's true, Adam? Right? No, this was the first number one hit that she ever had. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not surprised because it just it has all those pieces of a hit song. It's got a catchy, you know, grab your attention title. It's it's a catchy tune, and I thought the arrangement deviated maybe only a little bit, but enough from standard to make it interesting. Rob, you mentioned earlier that. You know, you fa- thought that this was a bit of an earworm and that there was a lot of songs that stuck with you. This was the only song, actually, that I even remember. And, you know, it's uh, it's not to shit on the rest of the album, but I think back to the idea of some of the, the sameness. There's another song I, I think we're going to talk about shortly that I actually thought I would, like, hit repeat on that, on Don't Come Home With Drinking, because I it's, it's just, like, same tempo, same everything. I, you know, so I... That, song super catchy like that's the banger of the album but i really didn't like get that same vibe you know throughout i do like the fact that she gives her husband like explicit permission to cheat in this song she's just like you know oh, yeah if, if you're you gonna want that kind of love you don't need none of mine go elsewhere out, yeah, see yeah. what you can find go out on the town and right. see what you can find it's like oh well don't mind if i do all right <laughs> like your honor she said it in the song yeah uh, that's t- <laughs> I mean, I was also hammered. I've been a drinking all night long. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to the next song that we're going to focus on, which is called I Really Don't Want to Know. How many arms have held you? And had it to let you go? How many? How many, I wonder, but I really don't want to know. Yeah, this was my favorite song as a song on the record. So this was a cool find. It's not her song. This is a cover. It had been recorded a number of times, including by Les Paul, famously in the 50s. This is the one that had 17 versions of this were professionally released in the 1960s alone, including Elvis, Perry Como, Rosemary Clooney, and Solomon Burke Ooh, in 1962. Yeah. Oh, nice. I didn't, right. I didn't catch the Solomon Burke one. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, but this to me, this is a classic American songbook kind of song. I was a little surprised I didn't know it, that it hadn't, didn't have a little bit of a bigger presence in, in the catalog. And I thought the ending chord change thing was really nice, for instance. Instead of resolving it on that one chord, they kind of, I, I think they drop to the relative minor, maybe. It, it's like a classic songwriting trick. But, right. Or it's a trope. really nice. But it's really yeah. nice. It's very effective. It works. Don't want to know. No, I really... Especially and for a samey song. 
get yeah. a little bit of variety at the end. You're like, ah, oh, it feels great. And listen, I totally agree that the songs on this record come across a little samey, but there were some gems of, of right. I thought the, the writing bar was generally pretty high compared to other stuff I had heard from this sort of era. So that, I, I agree and, with and, that. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, it didn't feel as like disposable to me as some of this stuff can, although I, it was hard not to have that feeling linger a little bit. I actually did have in my notes for this song that I thought there were, I can't, couldn't describe what was happening with the chords, but they sounded interesting in a way that I didn't really get from the rest of the album. Um, in general though, I did, I don't need a song to excite me or to stimulate me. I did feel like I was going to fall asleep during this song and you know, I, it, it didn't quite get me there, but I thought it was, it was interesting relative to, you know, kind of the rest of the album. You know, it's funny. You guys talk about this song and I, we talk about the sameness again. I bucket these songs in a couple of categories. And for this particular category, the one that actually really struck me was that song, uh, Saint to a Sinner. I feel like it's kind of hit that same sort of slow, pensive, but that's, that felt more powerful to me than this song. I, I didn't dislike this song, um, but... It did have a little bit of the yeah. This came across as more stock to me. If I'm talking about what my what my sort of like diamond in the rough find was for me, it was Saint to a Sinner. It's funny because this is the one that stuck with me that I've had rolling in my head for the last week. I think it showcases her voice in a way that some of the other songs don't. There's specifically one spot where she does a vocal slide. I agree. A lot, of, a lot of great emotion in the tune. Yeah, it felt like a classic songbook. Like it could have been a Cole Porter tune or something. But I thought she rang yeah, something right. out of it. Right. I almost felt like I wouldn't be surprised if, like, this sounds crazy, but if one of those seventeen covers was like Tom Waits or somebody like that, <laughs> just doing like a barroom kind of, you know, ballad. I guess. You know, I think that maybe what made me feel like this was a little bit more disposable to me is because the subject matter did seem kind of stock of you know I'm oh I've I'm I'm longing for somebody or I have this man and I'm like you know I love you so much I don't want to I'm trying to look past your flaws and whatnot again I'm not trying to harp too much on a different song than what we're talking about but the thing that caught me about that song Saint to a Sinner was it did have that it gave me the slowness it gave me the kind of sadness but it was also about that topic of like i'm cheating and you turned me into a cheater and i just again i I can kind of in love with how open she is about this stuff she's really dumping her purse out on this album it's fantastic i got to dispute that the way this song goes about you could say all the songs are stuck because they're about relationships i suppose but (laughs) i think this song has a clever approach word word based approach which is i want to know but i don't want to know to me that's an interesting interplay so I, I totally agree with the overall sentiment, which is I think the song quality is generally high. She picked the right songs in the cases of the songs that she chose from other songwriters, and she wrote some good songs too. And that, to me, is what held the record together while a lot of the arrangements felt very similar or even interchangeable. Let's actually, Tom, since you really dug that saint to a sinner, let's drop a little bit of that in. But while you were busy with business, and boots I lost the wings and the halo 
So it's funny, Tom, the way you interpreted those lyrics, for me, it almost felt like her husband had convinced her that she was a bad person. That's the way I read that. Just having read about how much of a monster this guy was, that he would come up to her and be like, oh, you're, uh, you don't like the way I'm treating you? Well, now you're the bad one. And she's like, oh, I am? All right, well, I guess I've gone from a saint to a sinner. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is like, you know, spousal. Obviously, it's spousal abuse, but... She may... It's hard to dispute the facts of the case that she you know, had a terrible husband. But I got to say, after I listened to the audiobook of her memoir, and although it was read by Sissy Spacek, not her... I was told that Sissy Spacek spent like a year with her learning her mannerisms and like how she talked to oh, kind of get it, get it right. So it really felt like you were listening to Loretta Lynn talk. And I just want to tell you that this, this enhanced her persona for me a lot. And she is not a timid person at all. Like at n- not one sentence of timidity, which comes through in the songwriting. So I just kind of doubt she was really totally bowled over. I understand she was a kid and got wrapped up in this marriage and that is inherently you know bad and weird but she came into her own and has a lot of individuality and pride you, do you know what i mean like she's yeah and th- there is the the famous quote that she never uh, he never hit her without her hitting him back twice so like she wasn't you're right yeah but she's also 52 and like 100 pounds <laughs> yeah, he's a yeah, logger right right i think the argument is probably that it's stock it's locker that it's stockholm's syndrome or you know whatever I, she's yeah, so that's... used to it but i'm just telling you that she really comes across as someone who's fiery and intense and just like f you i know what i'm doing oh yeah right well cuz there is the other uh, vein of songs that she has she has the songs that are you know like more the stock country songs she has the songs that are women's liberation songs but then she also has the like i'm gonna kick your ass if you try to take my man songs which are pretty awesome as well i'm, I'm a fan of those adam you turned me on to that song fist city i was like that song is yeah great, song is great. Yeah. yeah it's badass well, yeah. it was hard not to listen to some of this stuff seeing how she has that sort of like fu mentality and thinking about how i don't i don't want to say shocked but the alanis morissette song you ought to know like i remember when that came out people were like "Ooh, that's like edgy and you know, Loretta Lynn was kind of writing some of this stuff way back in the 60s. I don't think it was quite as, like, graphic in, you know, in some senses. But, like, the fact that you could still get some shock value in, like, 93 or 94 with essentially the same subject matter just is, like, is, is, is kind of cool. Like, baldly airing relationship dirty laundry, not hiding it behind a lot of metaphors, just straight up saying it. Like, yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. I like that. And that's a great lead into the next song we're going to talk about called The Shoe Goes on the Other Foot. Cause the shoe goes on the other 
This is the one that made me the most feel like Lurleen. I just, I kept thinking of Bunk With Me Tonight, the little song she sings to Homer. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it, I definitely had it running through my head. I liked it. But, you know, the, the one thing that I wanted to point out here was the guitar solos are a little almost weird. Like, they're not quite stock country. They're also not really good. Yeah. There's something yeah. there's something a little strange going on where maybe they should have taken another take. I, I'm, I'm not sure because usually <laughs> there is just a way to do a country guitar solo, and they didn't follow that path. Yeah. I said, let's play it. that. Move on. <laughs> I I fell in love with the pedal steel on this well on this whole album, and we'll talk about the guy who was the pedal steel player on this album at at the end here. But this guy is a beast on pedal steel and if you've ever seen somebody play pedal steel i don't even know how the instrument works but they look like a mad scientist there's no frets on the thing you play it with a slide and there's like volume swells and it's just it looks like their hands are barely moving like we actually played with this uh a pedal steel player the other night and the dynamics that were coming out and it looked like he wasn't even like moving. His hands were just in one spot. Yeah. There was just this <laughs> insanity. It right? makes so much noise. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, they're I all like, op- I saw. Yeah. It's like open tuned, right? So they basically, everything's sounds good. So they can just kind of leave the slide there and just be like, just like, you know, there's not a whole lot of movement you got to do when every single string sounds good and in tune. Dude, that should have been the instrument I've learned on. Can't fuck up. I don't think that's that's not quite how it works, is it? I'm pretty sure that they were in open tune. They, listen, it's I, in an I, open tuning, but they still gotta they still gotta move it around like a slide guitar player. Oh yeah, and no, I thought they the do. pedals the pedals changed where the end the ultimate fretting of the instrument happens. I thought yeah. so it would change chords based on how you. I'm just saying you could it. you could definitely still hit a bad note, man. Oh yeah, that's you can yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I could find a bad note on that <laughs> thing. Right, listen. Well, I just remember, one, I think I saw like that guy Robert Randolph, is that his name, come out for a yeah, set with, yeah. with MMW totally. one time, and he sounded like Dwayne Allman on Speed or something. It was right. insane. <laughs> well, he also thought that like it was appropriate to play a 13-minute <laughs> fucking you know, pedal steel solo, which over no chord changes whatsoever. <laughs> There's something fun that the guitar player does. It's It sounds like a woodblock. In I think the left channel, it's it's very percussive, but it's just the guitar player playing a dead note. It's just like a hint of tone, but it sounds like a woodblock, kind of like that you know horse clopping sound, which I thought was kind of cool. You know, it's not part of the rhythm section because if it was part of the rhythm section, it would be hard panned right. <laughs> it has to be not <laughs> part of the very, rhythm section. It's very good. I think there was an actual horse in the studio potentially. So I am wondering, is this the first like? I am going to cheat on you anthem that from country. Like, I don't feel like country music stars, female country stars today could write a song. That's like, I am going to cheat on my husband. I feel like they write songs about like, if my husband cheats on me, I'm going to mess him up. But they don't say like, Nope, I'm going out. I'm on the prowl tonight. Cause my husband hasn't been giving me what I need. And so I'm going to go find somebody else. 
1967. Very progressive. So it's interesting because this song was written by a guy named Billy Mize, I think is how you pronounce it. So I wonder mm. if like Loretta Lynn went up and was like, hey, this is my shtick. Or the record company was like, okay, Loretta Lynn has a sound. She's got a message. She's going to be cutting edge. She's going to be feminist. She's going to stick it to the abusive guy. Write a song. And this guy's like, hmm, what if she... You know, it's, just, oh, it's interesting to think how this these form I think if it's, it's not worse. written by her. I think it's actually worse is that he was writing a song about how his wife wasn't doing what she needed for him, so he was going to go out and cheat on her, and he probably wrote that song a long time ago. And they just switched the pronouns. switched the pronouns. It's like um, uh, Jermaine Dupri with Always Be My Baby. Like, that Always Be My Baby, that Mariah Carey song, I love that song. You turn that song into a guy saying that to a girl, and it becomes creepy instantaneously. Yo. And this, I feel like, if you this is a women's liberation anthem. You turn this into a guy saying it, and you're like, ah, oh, what a dick. What a piece of shit. Well, the <laughs> song uh, Rich Girl, the Hall of Notes song, was actually about a guy who they knew who was some, you know, spoiled prick. But Man of leisure. Yeah, basically. So, yeah, it's been done. All right, let's keep this train a rolling, my friends, into I'm Living in Two Worlds. Unhappy in your world And lonesome in mine When I'm in your world I just pretend That I'm really happy Though I don't fit in Then I drift in my world So cold and alone All right, another slow one. It does, you know. I thought it was a well-written song. Again, I think the songwriter is called Jan Crutchfield. I looked that up. So a female songwriter, kind of interesting. You know, song quality relatively high. But yeah, it sounds pretty much the same as the other songs. The steel guitar sounded even a little more Hawaii to me in this one than than Nashville. (laughs) I did. I had a note on that too. I really liked I actually the Don Ho. I wrote up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did really like the. It's like my favorite kind of piano playing, the sort of just vamping on the melody after you sing the melody type of piano playing, and the way that they would trade off between that and either those slide guitar or the pedal steel. Um, you know. Basically, again, hard pan left, like at the beginning of the verse, it'd be the piano, and then halfway through the verse, it'd switch to the guitar. I like that. I thought that was tasteful. It was good. That that, I, But I did find myself listening to that and not listening to really anything else in the song, because everything else in the song was sort of stock is, yeah, it's overused word in our podcasting, but I'm going to say stock again. It seemed a little stock. Yeah, this was at a point... It, well, it wasn't at this point where I realized this. It was definitely a little bit sooner, but... I was going to say, did you make it all the way through? <laughs> and this was the one that was like, oh, I can't. No, no, no. It's... it's the, This album just essentially has like two speeds. There's kind of the the ballad, the the kind of sad, longing, you know, song. And then there's the like up-tempo. It's the almost bouncy. like... They, bonk, dink, da, bonk, dink, da, bonk, dink, da, bonk. Yeah. There was like totally. two tempos that they could go for, and, and that's kind mm-hmm. of it. Um Again, that could just be a sign of the times, but 
by the time I got to this song, it was just like, okay, this is either up-tempo, gallopy, or, you know, sad ballad. You are not wrong about that, Alan. I, uh, again, I feel like you have to look at it almost like, I, like, I found myself approaching this like I would approach a hip-hop album and be like, it's not really about the backing tracks. A lot of it's about the message and the words. Like, let's focus more on the words than we focus on the music behind it, you know? The music can be a little bit boring, but it's a vehicle for getting a message out there. That's really funny you say that, because I know on the, uh, the Ice Cube episode that we recently did, go back and listen if you haven't heard it, we had mentioned that it really is lyric forward in order to, to listen to these songs. Yes, there are some cool hits, there's some cool samples, but really it's all about the lyrics. And so that's, I, I was thinking about that too, going through this. I think it's fair to grade art on what they're aiming for and what they're focused on. But at the same time, it's also reasonable to hold up a very high standard of saying when all those elements come together, that's what makes it truly great. Absolutely. Sure. And Rob, I do agree that you can tell that these are songs written by professionals. This is not, uh, yeah. by and large, somebody who is given their first poke at writing a song. Like I said, Loretta Lemon's writing a song for 20 years at this point. So it's not right. like By the time you get her, to your 10th yeah. album, you're... You're pretty dialed in, I would think, yeah. at that point. If it hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. Crack the code. Yeah. All right, let's 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 bring this train home here. We're going to hit one last song. This one was actually written by Loretta Lynn. So uh, one of the two songs on the album written by Loretta. This one's called I Got Caught. You're standing there saying I'm no good. And I'm so ashamed I'd die. But you're no better than I am Or have you given this one thought The only thing that's different I got caught Of all the nights you left me all alone And the only arms close to me was my own And now you're blaming me But it's not all my fault The only thing so one of the things that I one of the things I loved about doing some of the research is that she had multiple songs that were banned on the radio. Like country DJs were like, we will not play this song. And I'm totally picturing that they're picking songs like this that are like, hey, listen, you know, cheating, philandering husband, like, I can do this too if you want to. Like, you can get mad at me for cheating on you, but you've been cheating on me, and I'm picturing these, like, you know, um, older, emotionally distant, like, philandering radio executives be like, I can't have my wife hearing this and thinking this is the kind of behavior that's okay. we got to ban this song. Never going to see the light of day. It had nothing to do with, like, morality or Christianity. It was just, like, no. <laughs> exposing no, the like, hypocrisy. They're like they're gonna have no fault divorces soon. Like I gotta wrap this up. We cannot have these women getting the uh, getting these ideas in their head. <laughs> Who's gonna make me dinner? My only note here was again the the pedal steel by a guy named Hal Rugg. He did all of the pedal steel on this album, which I just thought was one of the standout points for me. From again, you've got a stable of musicians that are just kind of working in the Nashville machine. I thought his playing throughout the album was something for me to latch onto musically. Again, because we, we are saying it's a little bit repetitive, but th- that was that was something that stuck out to me. So good work, Hal Rugg. There is one thing, and I'm pretty sure it happened on this song as well. I know it happened on The Shoe Goes on the Other Foot, where 
they actually had on the right side a a very light acoustic guitar just kind of strumming the chords and it helped to glue the sounds together for me a lot it it made them sound less separated and a little bit more consistent because i had both a rhythmic and a more like to say that the bass is not tonal is clearly not fair to the bass but something closer into that the range that she was singing in that the rest of the instruments were playing in to kind of glue it together so i, I felt like that was a that was the kind of thing that was missing on a lot of the a lot of the tracks. Like you could have just gone through and had a guy just strum acoustic guitar chords; it would have sewn everything up nicely. But they did it on right. this one; it worked. Here's a question I have: Is this a pattern of the? I'll call it like sort of the early feminist, you know, fu sort of style. Because like by the time I got this song, I was like, is this like an accidental concept album where it's <laughs> it, you know it's kind of continually coming back to this theme of you know. I, I don't know. Is is this how the rest of her catalog sounds? And I think it's great. I don't have any problem with it, but I just wonder I if how she the rest of her life her was. for this one. <laughs> yeah, I think she's fairly theme consistent, I would say. It's, it seems like, yeah. Yeah, she, I mean, again, I think it's the authenticity angle. Where she was, I'm sure, like, I'm having knockdown drag out fights with my husband about how much he's cheating on me. And so I'm going to cheat on him. Hey, you know what? That's, that'd make a pretty good song. Or, you know, just write about what you know. Well, she did talk about that in the memoir, too, that she was like, well, that's just how I write songs. I don't know how other people do it, but that's how I do it. Just write my life. Oh, also. She's super charming. One more comment to make, though. I remember being annoyed by Steve Earle trying to, like, hiccup his voice a little bit on the uh, on Guitar Town, which, by the way, Spotify keeps playing every time this album finishes. The first thing <laughs> that comes in is like, no, 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 no. Hey, little baby, come around it for me. <laughs> If you heard Loretta Lynn talk, like she's not faking that at all. She talks and um, she talks like poor white trash from Kentucky in a very charming way. You're right. But there's that. We've talked about it before that song. You're the reason our kids are ugly where she's singing with Conway Twitty. And she is she pronounces the word wires like wars. I'm riding around on recap tires And you're the reason I'm hanging our clothes outside on wars And you're the reason our kids are ugly And like she seems like you said at some point she'd like moved out to Washington State I guarantee you she was calling that Washington And like she would yeah. go to the library in Washington There's, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole consistent thing with her That I really like, again, it's very charming yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm still just in awe that she lived to. Well, she's still alive, right? I mean, she's 90. Yeah, and she just recently. The only reason she stopped touring recently because she like broke her hip or something mm-hmm. uh, a year. Well, pre-COVID, but she was you know touring up through her late 80s. You know, I think she's 89 now. You know, what's actually pretty awesome is that. Um, uh, in 2016, at the end of all of her concerts, uh, she would express support for Donald Trump, saying that, uh, you know, I think he's the only one who's going to turn this country around. <laughs> so everything really I said here? before, erase it. <laughs> <laughs> totally let down. Loretta Lynn can go down. <laughs> if you want more people raised on coal miner steak, a.k.a. bologna, and married at 14 to moonshiners... He's your man. Yeah. Well, but that's that's the reason I brought up the 90 thing was like 
that's a hard, that's hard living, you know? And like, it doesn't sound like she drank a lot or drinks a lot or anything, but I, I, I do feel like that there's something to be said for like the constitution of your body to be able to just hang that long with, with that many, you know, hardships. Well, and that many yeah. kids too. They age you fast. Truth. All right, folks, there you have it. We have just been reviewing Loretta Lynn's Don't Come Home a-Drinkin' with Lovin' on Your Mind. So what we do now in the podcast is we kick it around the room to see what y'all think and whether or not this album, I said y'all, pandering. <laughs> we see what... We fixin' to give what, this some reviews. <laughs> <laughs> y'all done learnt me how to do it right. We're gonna see whether or not you guys think uh, this album from our, our friend, the coal miner's daughter deserves to be on the list of the 1001 albums you have to hear before you die. Let's throw it over to my friend, Alan. So I think I've been sort of clear that I'm not in love with this album. It, I probably will not listen to it again, but I do think it belongs on the list because it's, there's something sort of pioneering about this. And again, I'm not steeped in, old school country uh but there's it, it it feels authentic and it you know she's just very iconic so would i listen to it again no but i, I do think it's it's worth a listen all right rob what are your thoughts yeah so these are the ones that are always the toughest for me i i did enjoy the listen i'm happy i listened to it but with someone who has a catalog this vast and is part of a musical tradition that is this vast and deep of which I know almost nothing. It's it is really hard <laughs> to put your finger on whether this is the Loretta Lynn album you should listen to. But yeah, I did notice there's no other Loretta Lynn albums on Robert Dimery's list, and so it's an uneducated yes. I'm gonna say yes because of the songcraft and because getting an introduction to Loretta Lynn is important. The truth is, I don't know if there's a better album that's gonna give you that introduction. Feel free to tell me in the in the comment section. But for now, I think the songs were good enough. They're strong enough. And her career is impressive enough, all encompassing that you should listen to it. I love how the guy who has listened to the memoir and watched the movie has the uneducated. <laughs> you are much that's more case, educated like, than us. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Tom, uh, what do you got? I'm going to go with a yes as well. I was not, 100% in love with all of these songs. I'm in love with Loretta Lynn, though. I, Donald Trump support aside, as Bill Burr says, she's like 86 years old. What did you think she thought, right? You think she was like super progressive? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, one of the reasons I, I think it's a, it's a yes for me is I don't think you hear as bravely naked and truthful song topics and lyrics in country music to this day. And it's has not been recreated to my knowledge. I don't know a ton about country, but if they have recreated it, I know that Loretta Lynn started it. And so good for her. All right. Back here to Adam. So this is one of those albums where my mom had mentioned that when she was growing up in her teens, she would listen to Loretta Lynn. And as a kid, I had no exposure to country. And I remember she told me about this song called Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' with Lovin' On Your Mind. And we thought it was hilarious. We never actually went out to find it. We just knew the title. So in my mind, I always had this image of you know my 19-year-old mother bopping around in her car listening to Buck Owens and this. 
So it was a so real treat. Your parents treat. have just been cool forever then, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real treat to come back in and to actually get to listen to the album end to end. I think everything's been said already. It it does get repetitive at times, but I think Loretta Lynn, just on account of being herself, regardless of what album Robert Dimery picked out of the hat, you need to listen to it. So it's a yes for me. So congratulations, Loretta Lynn. You're on the list. You should go out and listen to Don't Come Home a Drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind. I will say so, this. Four out of four. One of the reasons I voted yes is I was a little worried Loretta Lynn was going to hear this and come and kick my ass. Because <laughs> <laughs> It's a very real possibility. Ho- hopefully you said come a kick your ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> come a kicking. Yeah, because she also, she recorded uh, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Pre, um, Yo, hold on a second. Pre- that is Sinatra. I, I'm shocked that you actually mentioned that because there was one of the songs, I think it was actually the last song that we talked about that I, I didn't mention this, but in my notes, I put, this song reminds me of These Boots Are Made For Walking, and I had no <laughs> clue that she had any association with that. So that's... But she didn't write that one. You're saying no, she recorded no, no. it before the Cheer Nancy Sinatra version. version. Yeah, I'm yeah. saying there was something about it that just reminded me of that song. It, you know, it's actually possible that Nancy Sinatra did that before because Nancy Sinatra was in '66. I didn't realize it was quite that early. Um, mm. yeah. yeah. So when did that's when in the same? Go? That's definitely in the same genre as these songs, though, for sure. That makes totally, sense. totally. Well, I'll just put a plug in. You can't, unfortunately, it's not on Spotify for some reason. But the album she cut with Jack White called Van Leer Rose. You can listen to it on YouTube or something. It's actually really good, and it sort of fixes some of the problems that we talked about because it's a little more produced and modern. Right. But her voice, I think, still sounds great, and I think a lot of the songs are great. They're all her songs. What if you don't like Jack White? How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say anything because it's going to open a can of worms. All right, we're going to throw things over to Tom with his Albinator 5000 to figure out what album we're going to listen to for next week. Alrighty, thank you all for sticking with us for the most exciting part of this podcast. We're going to spin the big old wheel on the Apple Native 5000 and figure out what we're going to listen to next week. So, drum roll please. Next week we will be listening to Nina Cherry Raw Like Sushi. I don't know. I feel really anything. stupid. I don't know. I've never heard of Nina Cherry. I don't I'm, know what any of those words mean. I'm assuming <laughs> it's oh, Nina. God. It's N-E-N-E-H. I always thought it was Nana. I, I feel like there's an MTV, there's there's some one-hit wonder MTV song that's not clicking, but that, you know, yeah. I don't know. Sushi I, is raw. Honestly. I can confirm that, though. <laughs> what about Unagi, man? That's, that's not raw. <laughs> there you have it, folks. We're going to wrap this thing up. Go listen to Nina Cherry's Raw Like Sushi. If you have any thoughts on the show, if you hate us, if you love us, let us know. Drop an email to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. If it's somewhat coherent, we'll read it on the air. Hasn't happened yet, but I'm I'm thinking around episode 100 is, is really when it's going to start. We have a lot of people just in. smashing the keyboard and then hitting send. Right. It's a real problem. <laughs> They're just so angry they can't form into words. How can I best express my rage? <laughs> it's either that or death threats. <laughs> right. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to wrap things up here. So for 1001 Album Complaints, I am Adam. I'm Alan. I'm Rob. 
And I am Tom. Boosh.